Hello everyone, and welcome to the Private Equity Power Talks podcast. I'm your producer, Richard Ayliff. The topic of this podcast is one many people feel uncomfortable discussing. However, it's of paramount importance to PE business leaders, both in terms of their work life and the continuing success of their business, and in their personal lives and the peace of mind of those closest to them. We're joined by Susie Hillier, Head of Wealth Planning at Stonehaven Fleming, an independent advisor to some of the world's leading families and wealth creators. Susie explains how PE-backed CEOs and their management teams can be affected by the sudden increase in wealth once a business is sold, and how Stonehaven coaches clients through this process, from the moment the wealth is first realised and all the way through to the legacy it will leave for future generations. We also discuss what it takes to start your own wealth planning process, what your long-term expectations should be, and the impact that COVID has had on all of these things. Now, over to Sam and Susie. Right, let's get started. So this episode, really pleased to be joined by Susie Hillier. Uh, Susie is a partner at Stonehaven Fleming uh, and is head of their wealth planning business. Now, Susie and Stonehaven are active uh, in the Pep Talks community, and that's because they're backed by Caledonia Private Equity, who acquired a minority stake a couple of year, years ago in 2018. And secondly, their CEO, Chris Mary, is one of our founding members. So preparing for wealth is a topic of discussion amongst our community. It does come up, um, but rightly or wrongly, it's, it's definitely not a topic of priority. However, when the arrival of seven-figure amounts of money is, is not considered and the impact that that, uh, that arrival may have on you as the CEO and your team is not considered, then it, it can lead to problems. And the sort of problems that we've come across uh, in our community, it's really, the, number one is, is the sort of psychological impact that it can have. So certainly if you're a founder, an entrepreneur, or a CEO and a management team that have been driving uh, growth of the business towards uh, an ultimate goal of selling the company, which could well be a lifelong ambition for an entrepreneur or a five, six year ambition for a management team. Once you've achieved that, it has a huge psychological impact and most notably on motivation levels. So it may be that you've, you've um, had a seven figure amount of money arrive in your bank account, but um, tomorrow is a new day and a new owner and you've got to go again and the motivation and the psychology has to be right in order to do that. So we thought we'd talk to an expert on how to prepare best for this. And uh, Susie is definitely an expert in this field. She spent all of her career uh, advising entrepreneurs and founders and CEOs and management teams and families in how best to prepare and, and manage wealth over the long term. So thanks for joining us, Susie. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, well, so, I mean, and I'm really new to this. Uh, when should CEOs, when should our members start thinking about engaging with you know an advisor like you? Um, the short answer is that it's never too early to start. Um, by, what, by its nature, is actually a sort of a very long-term plan. So even when liquid assets are relatively modest, um, there are still very important aspects of planning that should be considered, um, as well as making provision for the next generation, for example. 
what an entrepreneur wants to do is focus on their business. So what they need to have behind them is all the sort of financial foundation to ensure that they can, can do that. So making sure that if they've got debt that's helped support put the business in place, you know, that's that's organized, it's cost effective, that they understand the cash flow requirements they need to keep the household running. Um, that they're miserable for a minute. They think about the impact if they are unable to work. So putting in place sufficient insurance to, to provide for that um, will just give take away one of those worries. You know, capturing some of the sort of use it or lose it allowances, you know, the simple things like ISAs, pensions, etc., that, you know, are tax year sensitive. If you can use them and find a way of funding them, then they will build again that foundation. Legal side of life, you know, making sure that you have wills and powers of attorney in place and the the agreement of what happens to you if if you can't work and if you've got a business partner and what will happen to that business. Um, and then finally, you need to have an eye for the future as to actually what does that creation of wealth mean to you and what impact will that have on you and your family? Um, before, as you say, that seven figure lands on your lands in your bank account. So you do some thinking prior to that. Absolutely. You know, we've all experienced the independent financial advisors who uh, organise our, our mortgages and pensions and educate us at a fairly young age about ISAs and so on, financial products. But what is the difference between true wealth management and independent financial advice? I think in our view, to be an effective wealth manager, you need the capability to offer the technical, the financial advice so across those standard things of pensions, insurance, really understanding um, wills and estate planning and how businesses work and the taxation of how to uh, extract value out. Um, and you need to be able to do that alongside being able to undertake the investment of liquid assets. Um, so you need to be able to have a complete understanding of a client's affairs, but really work with them to understand the long-term ambitions so you have a view of what to do before there's any capital that actually will eventually end up potentially in investment markets or may end up back in another in another business venture or may end up going to the next generation or may end up actually being gifted away into a charity, into a foundation, et cetera. Um, uh, it is much better if you can go on that journey with them a few months uh, before you know, there is that tr transaction which does leave some time to do a little bit of planning, uh, but then at least allows everyone to stop and breathe when the money lands on the bank account to actually really think through what are they trying to achieve. Yeah. One of our founding members is a true believer that as a CEO, you should really be preparing your management management team for that experience of, of wealth creation for the first time, because um, in his experience, you know, he has lost a, a couple of his management team because their, their psychology changed so much first time around. Um, and actually, it's a real detriment to the, to the business and to them. Well, it's not necessary to them as individuals, but it's really important to do the work up front, probably a year, even 18 months prior to any transaction to understand what your options are in terms of where the money should go and how to hang on to that motivation, especially if you're going to do a secondary deal or a tertiary deal. So I think I think you know uh, probably what you're saying is 
there are many differences, but you know, you are an expert advisor who can advise across uh, product streams, uh, investment options, but also the legalities involved in that and the structures involved. Absolutely. So let's let's just let's just envisage now. Okay, so I, you know, I am I'm I'm a I'm a CEO. I'm a founder. I've just gone through an exit and several million have has landed in my account. Um, well, what happens then, we know from our, our members uh, experiencing this, is they get called by just about everybody. You know, the uh, the wealth managers, um, the IFAs and the private bankers and the lawyers definitely um, get fed this deal transaction information and then go after these individuals. So when how, how can I see the wood from the trees? Who should, how, what sort of selection process should I have in my mind? I think... Um... The most important factors um, are trust and confidence. You need to have trust in both the individual and the firm that's going to advise you and manage your affairs. To be honest, you need to undertake the same due diligence as you would do in any decision you make in your business, you know, of, of who you were going to support and what impact it would have on your business. Um, you need to have that confidence in the individual and the firm that they will really understand your requirements and have had experience and uh, of working in you know with people with similar situations. You made a comment earlier about you know people being supported by their local IFA, but there becomes a point when potentially they outgrow that individual. That's no disrespect to them and no detriment to them. It's just that their affairs have become more valuable, more complex, etc. And therefore, you know, potentially it's time to to, to move on. Um, you've got to remember success actually doesn't isn't always just financial as well. Um, it can you know mean so many other things to, to, to clients, whether that is all about the family, whether it is about a particular passion that they have. Um, and so finding a firm and a team that understands you and understands where you're trying to go and can provide that support that it means that you can achieve that, you know, that's the most important thing. Um, but it's not just about one individual. What you need is a great team. Every meeting, every client will have a team that support them because, you know, you can make a, a statement about something and two people will hear it slightly differently. And what's really important is to make sure that actually, you know, that shared value and shared understanding is captured. What, what about some of the pitfalls or some of the things to watch out for when select an advisor. I mean, um, I believe that this type of work should be viewed as a profession and should sit alongside accountants, lawyers, etc. And to be sure that you're getting true, independent, um, constructive, technical, correct advice means that there shouldn't be any incentive to be able to end up with a product at the end. If the right advice at the time is to do nothing um, or just to tweak whatever is already there, then that is incredibly valuable advice. Advice that isn't connected to the sale of a product is, I think, more independent and more uh, and preferable. Probably also returns, aren't they? Aren't, aren't sort of average returns a bit of an issue in this game? Um, I, I've, I've, I've heard scenarios where, where a wealth manager might be trying to sort of engage with an, a, a client of another wealth manager. They might talk about the returns they might have 
delivered over three years. And you've got to be quite careful about this. Some of you, as a customer, you've got to be really looking at, okay, well, let's look at the last 10 years. Don't, don't show me the last two years or, you know, two years post global financial crisis when the market was on its knees. Absolutely. You've got to be really care- careful. You know, returns are just a relative metrics, aren't they? Uh, and it depends on so many factors about, you know, as you say, time horizon, what asset class, the willingness to accept uh, volatility and risk. You know, some of our clients may, um, having made wealth and are going again and have another business, their risk will be in their business. And therefore, the wealth that they've held back um may be deemed to be dull and boring, um, but actually it is the wealth that will meet their future expenditure, their goals and their objectives, and their risk that they're taking is within the business again. Um, in which case, those co- the combination is actually providing the stability for the family. You know, equally, you'll find you know, a private equity executive would say that private equity is not risky. It's their business, they understand it. Um, and therefore, they don't consider that the high risk and actually need the diversification from an investment point of view into lots of other assets. And therefore, that may look much higher risk than, you know, a normal portfolio for someone that doesn't have that uh, that appetite and that knowledge of private equity. Mm. So looking at performance figures in a table in isolation is, is incredibly dangerous, I, I would suggest. So... Um... My, my multi-millions have landed in the bank and I definitely want to work with you uh-huh. and Stonehenge. I mean, what, what, what happens then? What's, what's, what does the engagement process look like? Breathing space is really important as that money has hit the, the bank account. And as you say, the, the, the flurry of uh, letters and emails land on your doorstep or in your inbox, all terribly excited about helping you on your journey. Um, the best thing you can do is do nothing and just breathe. Um, Missing out on the investment market for a few months, for example, versus going headstrong into something and getting it wrong is well worth that potential loss on the investment. This is a long-term journey. We're not talking about the next year, two years. This is for the rest of someone's life. We actually often start a relationship with a client almost doing a sort of a health check of almost what the current position actually is and spending a lot of time thinking about what the future might look like and thinking about cash flow. And we do cash flow modeling for a lot of our clients, irrespective of their wealth. Multi, multi millionaires actually still value the cash flow and they can work through what proportion of their wealth is really needed for them, work out what is really necessary, and that helps you determine what is the purpose of the extra. Is it for the next generation? Is it for a next business? Is it for philanthropy? Um, and it's a not a once only sort of in involvement. We might put in place all the structuring. We might, you know, um, have the investments all in place, but it doesn't stop there. Um, it has to be an ongoing, uh, evolving relationship. You know, it's it's quarterly, it's monthly, it's weekly, it's daily with some of them. And it will be, a diff- it will change. It will ebb and flow just like life. There will be points in the time where there'll be more need and more work, but there will be a constant through that. And the checking and resetting of purpose, cash flow goals and understanding, that's what's really important. Okay. Um, As part of your service that you also manage the other advisors on my behalf. Absolutely. Updating wills. That's, I have have experience of doing that. And that's, that's a, 
you know, it's a real, it's a really difficult process, and the lawyers often don't get what your situation is or understand what you're trying to get to. Absolutely, I think to be fair to lawyers, and um, that very often somebody will walk in through the door and say, "I want a will." Clients have a tendency not actually to really share what their thinking is, um, and part of my job, I think, is really to work with a client, actually create the whole will. Um, before going anywhere near a lawyer, uh, because we understand the, the legal side of life, we understand the tax side of it. And what actually is really even more important is that letter of wishes. The will should actually be very dull um, and not actually show too much. It's a public document. Anybody can actually go and read and see what, what, says, what it says in there. So putting pounds and pence and lots of detail in there is actually often not what people will want if they understand that. What's really important is that letter of wishes that document that really captures and says to your family um, exactly what, what are, you, are you trying to achieve. So you're right, one of our jobs is really that coordination of um, the tax planning and working with the accountant to get the tax returns done, understanding the business, making sure that the, the legal side of the business of you know, share ownership, um, et cetera, all is congruent together with your own affairs. Yeah. What's really important, uh, I think, is that a couple does the whole journey with us together. Um, it may well be there is one individual in the family who is the entrepreneur, who is driving that particular business. There is that support that if something happens to one of them, the other person knows who to pick up the phone to. Um, and we talk often about sort of an ICE report and in case in case of emergency. Mm. Well, if the person with all the wealth, unfortunately, you know, pops their clogs, how do all the bills get paid? That account is frozen, you know, down to simple stuff of making sure that there is a pot of money or a joint bank account that actually allows for life to continue. There's such a huge assurance that, you know, it's one of those things that people do lie in bed worrying about, you know, if something happens to me, have I got the right life insurance? Where's the paperwork? Do you know to ha- how to action it? Where are the accounts? How can you access the accounts? All that, you know, it's really tricky stuff, actually. I mean, it's morbid to think about it, but actually when it happens, it's incredibly complicated to unravel if you don't have some help. So for my, another fairly unpleasant question, because obviously I'm handing over two thirds of my wealth or 50% of my wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what sort of return should I expect on that on an annual, on an annual basis? And then sort of, I know, I know the answer is probably as long as a piece of string in terms of what do I do with that then? Do I reinvest it annually or do I take it out? If I take it out, what are the tax consequences and so on? I think you answered your question quite well then, actually, to be truly honest. It's a long piece of string. <laughs> it's a long piece of string. As I say, returns are just a metric in that someone's definition of, you know, the, t- the typical way of saying cautious, balanced growth, um, everybody actually will have a different definition of it. Um, and so understanding the purpose of a pot of money and where does it fit into that whole storyboard um, will will help. So longer term investments, and let's keep things simple, most people will say their pension pot is a longer term investment. Uh, people may be prepared to take a higher, more aggressive, however you define that uh, strategy with that. Um, you can counter that very easily but then say, but hold on a second, there are tax consequences of exceeding all the lifetime allowance issues that are now there. You know, what is the true impact of that? Um, so then you need to understand, well, who, who is that pension pot for? 
is it for the individual whose name it is at the moment? Is it really there to support them in their retirement? Or actually, is it really a pot of money that's there for their grandchildren? And understanding that purpose will influence um, the investment approach and the risk that you will take. Yeah, but I am going to press you, Susie, sorry, because <laughs> I want a number, you know, is... I, I, well, you give me a number, give me a range. I mean, what's what's the sort of reasonable expectation? Uh, I, I'm going to be a, be a politician and still try and avoid <laughs> avoid the answer because well, the industry somebody, somebody's return. It, 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 you know, whatever inflation is, inflation is in an idle world. You want to keep keep uh, keep in line with inflation. That's your minimum after paying tax. Yeah. Because then you are retaining the the real value of your of your of your money. Yeah. Anything over and above that will come down to what are you trying to achieve. So you know whether you're aiming to get you know three three percent above inflation or you're trying to get eight percent above inflation. Any figure that is on the higher end, you have to question: Does the client know what they're doing, and do they have proper expectations of what the world is like? Back to your comment about different investment managers, you know, throwing stones at previous advisors saying that they only achieve X or Y and quoting that they can achieve, you know, 10, 15, whatever percent it is. The answer is you do not achieve those sort of returns without risk. If that's risk that is suitable and appropriate, then you may choose to invest a proportion of your money in that. Yeah. So, I mean, just coming to the end of our conversation now, um, a couple more questions. So I, I talked about some of the pitfalls that we've seen uh, amongst amongst our members, certainly around um, the psychology psychological impact and uh-huh. um, motivation and the impact on organisational culture. And what what are, what are the what are the other pitfalls that you you've seen in your time when you know this wealth creation subject hasn't been carefully thought about? Yeah, um, I think it's safe to say sort of over expenditure and capital depreciation at the beginning uh, is the most obvious one. Uh, in that if they haven't worked out how much of that money is needed to support them throughout their lifetime, you know, all the flashy cars, the um, uh, the expensive houses, et cetera, suddenly um, cause a problem. There isn't enough money to pay and maintain those properties, et cetera. Um, but there's obviously lots of variations on that theme. Very interesting. So as we conclude, I mean, what, um, what should our, our members be thinking about in terms of their approach to wealth management right now you know just in this difficult economic time 2020 when the next couple of years are going to be tough aren't they um yeah although some of the markets are performing reasonably well so i mean you know tell us what you think um i think to be honest it's the same as any other year um in our experience clients always have cause to just to think through their priorities uh, and ensure that their long-term plans are robust um, and that's not really any different than the fact that we've had a pandemic. What has been really interesting is that in the last few months, um, people have spent more time with their families. Now, some people will say that's not that's great, and some would say that's been a little bit more challenging than the, than they had thought. But what we've generally found is a lot more people have spent time thinking about what does their wealth mean to them. Uh, they can talk about family values and the purpose and they can talk to their children and we help facilitate that. Um, And that absolutely, I think, will continue. Um, Taxation, however, also now has got a a high overlay on that in that we have to pay for the world that we're currently living in. 
Um, it doesn't have to be a rush. I think uh, you have to listen to the chancellor and and, uh, and others to realise that you know this is not going to be you know repaid within five minutes, but clearly it does have to be paid. So in that planning for the family, you have to take into account tax and what could happen. Um, and so I think a lot of people are contemplating their structures and the wealth they've got at the moment, and almost sort of you know kicking the tires to say. Does it work now and does it work if A, B or C might happen uh, from a change in taxation? And should I do any planning around that? Um, you know, an, an easy one that everyone's talking about is capital gains tax. Um, it's at a you know, historic low rate. Um, we may all consider that actually it's probably one of the most effective rates that it is, but it's an easy one for anybody potentially to, to increase. Um, so, what does that mean for someone's existing investments? What does that mean to their existing structures? Um, should they be undertaking planning prior to that change? Or actually, you know, it'll be ta taxation changes all the way through lifetime. The fact there may be times where it is heavier and harder specifically to your own affairs doesn't mean to say that that structure won't be right and appropriate in 5, 10, 15 years. And therefore, nobody should do any sort of quick, quick decisions. Um, but I think talking and working with the likes of ourselves rather than just an investment manager, rather than just an IFA, means that we can look at all of that in the whole and then decide what is the most appropriate strategy. Mm. Okay. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to take this as my own pearl of wisdom. I read it somewhere, but uh, I think I read, you know, a piece of advice around wealth management was as, as the customer, you need to be the CEO of your wealth management and you need to then, choose a very effective specialist advisor to work alongside you so you know if, if you're in this situation you have to kick yourself up and develop your own knowledge and understanding of of this landscape and then work with a really high quality advisor that can help you shortcut it and deal with quite a lot of the day-to-day -day issues that you have to face absolutely agree uh, and in some respects is when you want to step down as that ceo uh, and go off and do more and uh, maybe enjoyable things, then you've got in place the right team to uh, to ensure that it stays on the, the right road. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Susie, thank you so much. And if any of you listeners out there want want an introduction, and want to make contact with Susie, then then do reach out to us and we'll, we'll put you in touch. But thank you again, Susie, and um, we'll Thanks see you very soon. Me. So what, what, what did you think, Richard? What, what, what did you make of that conversation? My sort of key takeaway would be the amount of pressure the P-back CEOs already under. Having someone like this on board could just be a massive relief to that. Just that having that additional boost of wealth, especially when you first complete an exit, can, can be quite life-changing. And it, there's, I mean, obviously it's good, but it comes along with a lot of, a lot of different stresses. A lot of things you have to organise. Like everything else, it's best to prepare for this. If ill-prepared, there can be some pretty damaging consequences on the other side, like wasting some of your hard-earned hard, hard -earned returns yourself on the wrong type of investments, leaving yourself exposed for later if, if, if things don't go quite as, as you would assume they would do in terms of going to plan, and also probably 
even more importantly, the effect it can have on your team, you know, and morale and culture. You know, you don't want your people turning up to work in brand new Lamborghinis and Ferraris. That's going to say something that's not necessarily aligned to your culture. You, you want them to be squirreling that money away, have, having some to hand to enjoy, but not to the extent where it's going to affect their motivation on a second or tertiary deal. Yeah, I think it's definitely an aspect there. You've just got to have those conversations with your management team because everyone's going to react in a different way. It's, it's most likely going to be a new experience for all of them. And, and like you say, motivation may go. That might be a product of it for some of them. And then you just need to know that that's the case and react accordingly. Yeah. Well, I think the other, the other aspect of it is, is this having everything squared away, having all your personal finances and um, family matters squared away with a partner that um, has has everything to hand in terms of thinking about worst case scenario. And in a worst case scenario, can your husband or wife put their hands on, um, you know, the money, the bank account, and is, is everything set in place? So, you know, if that was to happen, which would be obviously cataclysmic for the family, it's not compounded by the fact that the situation is disorganized in terms of, you know, where the personal finance, where, where the family finances are. Yeah. Yeah. I think with Stonehagers, that whole aspect of de-stressing that situation from start to finish, whether it's the, the good side or the bad side, good side being that big influx of money post deal and how to, how to put that away, what to do with it. And then obviously the bad side of, eventually, you know, passing that money on to the next generation. Stonehenge all about building that relationship generation to generation and making sure these times where you're probably heavily focused on something else, those aspects are still being taken care of.